On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time Imon Irokti Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligam, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echol. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start, a word of warning. This podcast contains graphic accounts of murder. This is the story of a very average Irishman. He was tall, lean, fit, go-ahead sort of a guy and certainly would have been seen from an outside point of view as a good catch. A path paved out for him in Ireland's elite swimming circle. Frank McCann appeared to have it all. Esther thought she had found the perfect man, the perfect father, the children that she wanted and she thought he was mad about her and so did we. But this son, brother, husband, foster father and swimming coach was hiding a very dirty secret. One that would shock a nation when he did the unthinkable to hide it. We now know that uh, Frank McKinn himself took these uh, heinous abuses to an entirely new level, simply to keep them from knowing that he had, I believe, uh, molested and impregnated a 17-year-old swimmer with special needs. This is the story of a man who committed double murder and has for almost 30 years lived his life behind bars, leaving the loved ones of those he killed in a permanent state of loss, but also fear that this woman and baby killer might soon walk the streets of Ireland a free man. You know, it really is a life sentence for all of us to live in fear for the rest of our lives, or for the rest of his life anyways. This is the story of Frank McCann. In this third and final episode of the Frank McCann murders, we hear about his two trials, one of which would subsequently put him behind bars. But first, here's Esther's sister, Marion Leonard, to tell us about the funerals of Esther and baby Jessica and how Frank behaved through all of this. The funeral was arranged with a very nice undertaker out in Blessington. Very kind man. And we had friends of priests around who were very, very good, very considerate. So the funeral mass was in Fairhouse Church. 
and Esther had a lot of friends, so it was packed. Um, Frank didn't get up on the altar immediately. He waited till a point that we didn't know if he was or wasn't going to. He never let us know what to plan. So whereas my sister could arrange the mass and and the music, um, we didn't know about a eulogy or not. And then he did get up on the altar and spoke very clearly and spoke about Esther's, the other man in Esther's life, which was a young lad with um, cerebral palsy, her friend's son, that Esther had fundraised for and doted on. He left the gap. You know, I want to talk about the other man in Esther's life. You know, it left us long enough to know sort of what. And then he mentioned Connor, so of course we all knew. He insisted that we didn't wear black. But we stopped at Lachlan Bridge on the way down and we all changed into black. Why didn't he want you wearing black? He wanted it to be a joyous send-off and Esther was bright and she was bright. She would always have worn would not have turned up at anyone's funeral like a, a butterfly. Yeah. So I remember changing very deliberately in the bathroom in the pub. And he mentioned it to me. His mum was there as well. But we continued on from there to Tremor and the blessing was in the church in Tremor. Again, packed. Now, I had said to him, you know, the tradition in Tremor is you stop at the end of the hill and you walk the family walks behind the hearse and he objected to this because he didn't want his mum doing it. My mother wanted to do it, who was a good bit older than Joan McCann. But anyway, we compromised and Esther's and Jessica's, they were in the same coffin, was brought into the church in Tremor and our cousins, who are very musical, played air and a G-string, some mus- musical Esther loved. And then Frank got up and he read a poem that he had asked Phyllis to find for him, a suitable poem to read on the altar, which he did. And he did, a, again, a wee eulogy there. But my sister had to help him, this big man, my sister isn't tall, had to help this big man over to the podium in Tremor. And I did hear one of Esther's friends saying on the way out, when someone would have known Esther well, I wonder when he got time to write that poem. Something very facetious, and you can't even say it was a tremor wish. It was somebody with a bit of insight into people. So there were there was a lot of suspicion there. The the, the seeds of doubt were, were firmly planted. Very quickly, yes. Mm. It's too much had gone on. Um, he didn't even know how to behave around the town. When we were going up to Duff up to my cousins. Uh, Frank was in the car and I think um, his brother was driving. And there was a group of kids that we would have known their parents, young girls. Um, and he shout, he shouted out the window at them, something like, I'm a free man, or look at me, girls, I'm, I'm here for the taking. Something like that. Really, really inappropriate behaviour. It sounds trivial to say inappropriate, but it was inappropriate. And it wasn't a grieving person's behaviour. When I was in Knockland at my cousin's, I had to get something from his car for him. And there in the boot 
was his chain of office. The last time I had seen that chain of office, it was on the hall table in Butterfield Avenue. He'd taken the chain of office out of the house when he was burning them. He'd set the gas cylinder on the table, which we knew afterwards from forensics. But the last time I had seen the chain of office was on that hall table. And that was in the boot of his car. He didn't even bother to hide it. And he, he would have known that I would have seen it. So a lot of inappropriate behaviour. Then he excused himself, drove to the pub in Blessington and had a birthday cake and carried it out with the candles lighting for his mum and sang her happy birthday. Here's Conor Fian, Irish independent reporter, to tell us more. There was a lot of sorrow for him. You know, people people felt he had suffered a huge loss in this. Um, and nobody really realised at the time that this was all an act. But it has been said since that, uh, that Frank is a a consummate actor uh, and is is well able to play a role when he wants to play a role and will only reveal his real self when he's tripped up, when he's annoyed, when he's confronted and when he's agitated. Because there there were in instances that Frank was relating to, claiming that he was being blackmailed, that, that there was somebody out to get him. And all of these uh, reasons added up as to why somebody might have intentionally even tried to burn the house. Yeah, like a- apart from the gas leaks at the house uh, and the electric blanket fire and brakes failing on cars, Frank was concocting a kind of a backstory before he'd even set the fire uh, in in the days beforehand where he was reporting that he was getting um, abusive phone calls and threatening phone calls and that somebody painted graffiti on his pub saying burn you bastard. He had all of these um, allegations that there were threats being made against him which when Gardaí tried to follow them up they could see no reason in the world why anybody would be threatening Frank McCann. He, he wasn't in, involved in anything criminal, uh, business-wise or dubious. He wasn't mixing with anybody um, in, in a paramilitary sense or a political sense. Um, so there, there seemed to be no unearthly reason why anybody would be trying to, um, to threaten him. So basically all his excuses, all the lines of inquiry that he created all started to tumble and the focus just kept coming back to Frank. When was he charged and why was he charged? What did they find that definitively led them to believe that Frank McCann had murdered his wife and daughter? Uh, Frank was um, arrested ultimately and charged uh, on November the 4th, 1992. And it was the fact that the gas canister was found in the house. Um, There was all the uh, material and records about reported gas leaks um, and to an extent the the admissions that he had made uh, in Garda custody, which were later efforts were made to withdraw them. They all led to... um, a, a belief that it was it was Frank that had done this, but ultimately, uh, what what tripped him up was the evidence of the people in the adoption authorities who were able to verify that Frank McCann and Esther were about to be given this news that they would not be able to adopt 
Jessica, and this would be the first time Esther would know anything about his his past, and it was uh, in an effort to try and protect his social standing and his reputation as he saw it that that led him to to uh, to set this fire. Frank McCann was ultimately arrested and charged uh, in April 1993, and for. Esther's family, this was um, uh, a period where they thought finally they will see justice for Esther and Jessica. Here's Stephen O'Brien, political analyst who worked for the Irish Independent and covered Frank's trials for the paper. That first trial began on the 11th of January 1994 when Frank McCann pleaded not guilty to the murder of Esther and Jessica. Uh, And it ran for some days. It ran, uh, you know, like I think it was running three or four days a week, depending on whether there was legal argument in the absence of the jury or not. And um, but on the 1st of February, about three weeks into the trial, um, Paddy McEntee, senior counsel, uh, Frank's uh, Frank McCann's defence barrister, applied for a psychological assessment of his client. He told the judge, who was Mr. Justice Rory O'Hanlon, he told him that his client had had difficulty remembering some of the evidence that was uh, adduced in court the previous day, and he was concerned about his mental capacity or his fitness to stand trial. So he was granted that assessment. Uh, consultant psychiatrist Peter Fahey found, in fact, that at that point in time, Frank McCann was not fit to stand trial. Um, The defence team uh, sought a second opinion. They said they had no reason to doubt uh, Dr. Fahey's findings, but sought a second opinion. Uh, But that evening, um, when he returned to Arbor Hill Prison, uh, Frank McCann attempted to self-harm in his own jail cell and uh, sustained uh, significant um, but not life-threatening injuries. Trial was indeed halted and uh, the jury was dismissed. Now, uh, I, I think the trial was, was going to be halted anyway on the basis of the medical evidence, but it was a uh, strange, maybe just a, a sign of the stress he was under at the time or um, something more sinister, but... Uh, Frank McCann inflicted significant injuries on himself. So naturally, after Frank had set himself in flames, uh, the trial stopped. McCann received treatment for his injuries and the the entire legal process had to be reapplied and it took uh, it took time then obviously to uh, to get a new trial organized and up and running. The second trial then um happened in 1996 and it was one of the the longest trials of of, of the time and there was a lot of evidence had to be presented. There were an awful lot of witnesses too. There were witnesses to the fire. There was fire brigade evidence, Garda evidence. Um, Frank's colleagues were interviewed, um, neighbours, Frank's associates uh, in the pub, people who lived beside the pub. Naturally, then the adoption authorities, they had to be interviewed and they had to give evidence. So there was an awful lot of evidence had to be presented. Uh, It was two years later before the second trial got going. It was was in in 1996 uh, when the second trial began. It ran for, for, for 10 weeks and 
didn't conclude until the 16th of August, which is very unusual that the, that a court would sit deep into the summer. But I think they were determined to get this uh, long running trial uh, concluded. The court heard that at one point that he had attempted, he had tampered with the brakes or on Esther's car. Uh, Esther woke up in the house at one stage and found the, an electric blanket on her bed in flames. Um, the gas pipes in the house were tampered with and he created a gas leak in the house, uh, which while she was asleep, um, she was a smoker. She could have struck a match when she woke up to have a cigarette. She could have turned on a light switch. She could have even started the car outside the front of the house. Any of those three things the gas experts said in this trial would have led to a catastrophic explosion. But uh, she did wake up and smelled smelt gas on that occasion and had the foresight not to, not to reach for a, a light switch. She uh, exited the house carefully. She let the handbrake off the car in the driveway and let it roll out of the driveway so that if she did start the ignition that it wouldn't set off um, an explosion. So she was uh, quite careful. But um, they made complaints to uh, the gas board and board gosh at the time um, about these leaks. And uh, and so there was an inspector called to the house and there was days of evidence about this, quite technical at times. Um, a gas ins- in- inspector said he found the house ready to explode uh, when he found it, you know, when he responded to this gas leak. Um, and th- he f- they found that a, a two pipes, a joint where two pipes were, were joined together and the, the pipes would have been soldered together, which is almost like a form of welding, um, that these had been pulled apart or, or certainly separated in some way. So there was uh, the, the the fitter who had made the gas joint, the, the, the joint of these copper pipes. He was uh, interrogated and cross-examined and he insisted that, the, that he had done all the work correctly uh, and that there was no um, faulty work work workmanship in the house. The customer services manager of the gas board, uh, Patrick Walsh, said that um, only two things could explain the separated pipes, either faulty workmanship or interference. And then we they, they, we kind of went up the, the food chain of experts and a laboratory metallurgist called Rosemary Harrington uh, was very convincing in her evidence. And she said, to her mind, uh, there was only one possible cause that this joint would have had to have been heated and pulled apart because she she could tell by examination that the solder was not defective, but there was an area of smooth solder around the joint, uh, which indicated that you know there wasn't a sort of a, a a broken line where something had been pulled apart by force. It indicated that heat had been applied and left the solder smooth when the joint was separated. And in court, Frank at times even seemed to be taunting Esther's family. The hours that the jury was out, McCann was thumbing through a book called Total Eclipse, which contained the amazing tagline or the shocking tagline on the cover. They were the perfect family until the perfect murder. It appeared to be chosen in in an almost sinister way by Frank McCann to deliver a message to the media, to his own family who largely did not support him and his brothers had pleaded with him early in this process to plead guilty uh, and give you know not put his mother through a lengthy trial but that didn't transpire or was he delivering a message to the heartbroken mother 
and sisters and extended family of his wife Esther. Frank was found guilty of the murders of Esther and Jessica and was given two life sentences. Frank McCann is still in prison. However, a parole hearing is imminent, something that is truly terrifying for Marion and Esther. Is he seeking parole? I'd say he is pretty close to thinking that he has it. He's he'd be he got the term taken from 93, so he's in jail that, that length of time has been taken into his sentence. So yeah, I would think he's he feels pretty close to getting out. He's been free to wander around the city for the past the month of July and, and most of June. So yes, I'd say he pretty much feels he's nearly out the door. And the whole point of, of, you know, coming in and talking to me today is to highlight the fact that society, in your opinion, does not deserve to have Frank McCann back as a free man on the streets. There's no telling what he will do. There really isn't. There's no telling that any regular person who crosses him what way he would react, whether he would still be interesting interested in pursuing young girls, as he was always interested in teenagers, whether that is still a feature. There is no knowing. There really is no knowing. And I don't think anybody can convince me that they know for definite Frank McCann is not going to harm somebody else. I'm totally of the opinion that he would. Esther, what do you think? Um, well, personally, yeah, I'm I'm really terrified for both my own safety, my mom's safety and, and the safety of my extended family, friends. Uh, like it's, if he gets out, it's, you know, it really is a life sentence for all of us to live in fear for the rest of our lives or for the rest of his life anyways. But it's, you know, it's one of those things that anytime you make a new friend, meet someone new, you're waiting for the day of, oh, I'm going to have to tell them now. I'm going to have to warn them that this is, you know, a potential danger that is in my life. And if, if that person is going to be in my life, it's a potential danger in their life as well. You know, I, I had to, one of the parole hearings where we weren't sure if he was going to get it or not. I was working in a school at the time and I had to go to the principal and give him, give the principal a photo of McCann and said to her, like, if, if you see this man, please call the police and please let me know. Do you know, it's, there's so many day-to-day things that I think the you know, maybe the judicial system, I don't know, they don't, it doesn't feature in, in their decisions where it, it majorly features in our lives and it, and it really is is disruptive. I, I, you know, there's so many, there's so much of my life that can be controlled by Frank McCann still, uh, even to the point of I, do, I don't ever really want to go into town. Coming into town today, I was in a panic attack even just thinking about it, you know, because, I mean, Mount Joy's around the corner. He's out dawn till dusk. But, you know, like my mum said, we, there's no knowing what's going on in his head if he sees us on a street. You know, there's so many things. There's so many quick ways to kill somebody. There's so many ways to injure people or terrify people or, or intimidate people. Yeah, it's... it's it's something that's very hard to live with day to day.
And we end this series in the words of Esther. I'll read this entry that Esther made about Jessica and about how she came into their lives. You were born on Sunday, the 10th of March, 1991 at 5.05 a.m. And you weighed five pounds, two ounces and looked very lovely. You were cleaned up a bit, introduced to me and your mother, and then very shortly after that brought to the care unit as you needed some special care because of your size. The hospital kept you in the unit for two days doing all sorts of tests on you. Jeanette visited you there. All that Sunday I spent getting clothes for you and your mother and making sure everybody knew about your safe arrival. That afternoon, I visited Jeanette in St. Patrick's Semi-Private and she was well and in good spirits. Monday afternoon, Frank and myself visited Rosemary Grant, the social worker attached to the hospital for a chat. We were with her for an hour and a half and she arranged that we should get together with Jeanette the same time on Tuesday to see how she was feeling about placing you for fostering for six to eight weeks. At that meeting on Tuesday, Jeanette told us that she had made up her mind and that you should come home with us on Thursday if you were being discharged and that she wanted us to eventually adopt you. We were thrilled and a little worried that maybe Jeanette had made her decision too quickly. She, however, felt that it was the best possible arrangement for you and that she was certain that we would be good parents to you. So here you are with us and we love you dearly. I don't intend to give you a day-by-day account of your life with us, but your early days have been eventful. I will try to fill you in on all the more important things that will happen to you in your life. And maybe we can keep a record for you to read when you're older. That was how Jessica came into their lives. And Esther's finally, final entry, entry to Jessica's diary was on the 30th of July, 1992. My darling daughter, Jessica, you have grown and become a beautiful child. You have been walking now for a little over a week and have given up holding onto walls in search of your own bit of independence. Cup of tea and up a daisy with constant talk of daddy, oh mammy and mammy's baby. Lots of talk every day brings new joys of every sort and sound and sight and speech and movement. Ten teeth to show for all of the months of painful teething, which give you some problems with infections of all sorts. Nana's little darling in everything you do. She never ceases to love looking at you and you can really and you can really amuse with your antics, including playing the piano with much style and seriousness. May Warner next door. We'll have to take you for lessons soon. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced and researched by myself and Tabitha Monaghan with assistance from Connor Fian. Recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound by John Smith. If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow or leave us a review.